Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. This is an odd one. Are there any composers who were regarded at the time to be brilliant, but have since been reassessed as rubbish? This is rather what I would like to call the Van Gogh reversal, because he was considered rubbish in his life and is now almost the most revered artist of all time. But were there any composers who ever wrote, oh, that's so gorgeous, and have now slipped away? Into our favourite word, well, the wainscot. I'm going to assume that you're exaggerating just a tad because you, to say something is rubbish, um, it, it, well, I, I can think of several composers who now we do not hear of at all um, who were very successful, commercially very successful in their lifetimes um, but have since been reassessed. You, the best example, really, is someone like Salieri, who, of course, you, you, people might remember, features in that wonderful film about Mozart. Called Amadeus. Amadeus. Um, and Salieri was the head of the court's music. He was very senior, the most successful composer at the time, and he then confronted the young Mozart, who had so much more talent. Now, Salieri wrote a lot of decent music, um, music that pleased everyone in his audience. And you, 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 at the same time as acknowledging then, as we look back, that Mozart was an infinitely more imaginative composer, um, what came with that imagination was um, sometimes music that confused his listeners. Um, for example, The Marriage of Figaro, when it was first performed, was regarded as politically extremely dangerous. And an awful lot of people would have thought that Mozart shouldn't have gone there because he was simply writing an opera about... Um, Marital infidelity, wasn't it? Yeah, well, um, which showed the count, count up yes. in a bad light. And, of course, Mozart was a servant all his life to the court. So um, Salieri, on the other hand, pleased everybody... Nowadays, we you don't hear very much Salieri played, but it is decent and charming music. I've heard it, and it's 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 lovely. There's also another composer, Michael Haydn, who was Joseph Haydn's brother, mm. and Michael Haydn wrote some absolutely lovely music. But in comparison with Haydn, um, his music actually is fairly light and not so imaginative as Haydn was and and became. So Michael Haydn is not so often played now. But he's not rubbish. No, no, it's not, it, it's not rubbish in that sense. To a certain extent, and let, let, let this be a sort of closing on this, the, um, the, the composers who vied with Mozart for attention sometimes became hugely rich all over the world, and uh, there are examples of composers who, who became household names all over the world, the musical world, um, when, when Mozart was just beginning his, his life. But their music has now been reassessed as um, lighter, not so imaginative, and not so substantial. So it was bad luck for them being at the same time and being compared with Mozart. That's exactly right. I'm going to read you a letter, which comes from Karen. It's so nice. She said, I'm thoroughly enjoying t sharing time with you and your love for classical music. I'm quite the novice when it comes to this genre of music, coming from a background of classic rock. But music speaks to your soul, however we pigeonhole it, something you've always said. I have a question for you, the maestro. 
What's the most complex and challenging piece of music you've had to conduct? And what gives you the, the fear? fear? She says kind regards. I said, I'm not I said it was from Karen at the beginning. She said it's kind regards, but she's actually waiting with, you know, a cushion ready yes. to bury her face into it. Well, Karen, thank you for that question, because there's an awful lot of music, that, uh, especially contemporary music, that's very complicated, which means, by that I mean, there are so many different things happening at the same time that it really tests your ear, your oral capacity to analyse how to draw it all together. So I've got out a score here to plant in front of Dame Joanna and I've just painstakingly counted up the number of staves, which is the number of lines describing everything that's supposed to be going on. And there's 56 staves to a page. Now, the, this is Boulez, Pierre Boulez, wonderful composer. And the, the, these pieces are actually quite short. They're, it's called Notation. But the orchestra is massive, absolutely massive, and it needs nine percussionists spread around the back of the orchestra, playing instruments from tubular bells to bongos to Chinese gongs, and then timps. And there are three harp players as well. You need three harpists. So even though you've got 56 staves, yes. you've actually got more than that per stave. So each a stave might be for the harp, but it would, would be the same stave for three harps. Yes. He, he, so how big what is this orchestra? Out, uh, well, well, let me explain it this way. For The, the strings are all divided. Um, the, their music is all divided up with different music for the first desk, and that means the first two players. Then there's a line for the second, and, second desk, and a line for the third desk, and a line for the fourth desk. Um, and he's got a huge uh, brass section as well, um, and 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 huge wind section. Now, the, the, this is complex, but the complex bit of it is that when you rehearse it, you have to tune your ear so that you are taking in every note that everyone is playing. Now, that is complicated, and actually I don't normally have pencil markings all over my scores, but this one, which I did in Brisbane, it's covered with blue and red, sometimes just writing the, num the names of the instruments that I've got to pay attention to. I've written in tubular bells and bongos with bass drum with an arrow saying bass drums in the bar just over the page. This is really complex. Cases like a piece like this, the complexity is how to conduct it clearly so that everybody can fit their really complicated music into different bar lengths. Sometimes it's four, sometimes there's seven, which I have to divide into three beats of two and two and three. That's one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one. So, that, that, yes, and when I conducted this, I was full of apprehension, but excitement as well. Was it the fear? Was it the fear, do you think? The fear. I think I know what you mean by that, Karen, as your, your, your background, as you say, is in classic rock. I think I know what you talk about when you say the fear, the musician's fear, um, when you approach a really difficult piece. But the point is, as you know, you have to launch yourself at it, do your work, your preparation beforehand, uh, rehearse carefully, 
so that everyone in this complicated piece, they can't hear what everyone else is doing most of the time. Um, but it's just to do your prep and then be confident and throw yourself at it. Um, and anyway, you, nobody's going to die in a, uh, um, if something goes wrong. So um, you, you, you just launch yourself at it wholeheartedly. And there is always adrenaline in the air in all creative music making, as you probably know. But preparation, rehearsal, rep, rep, get yeah. it ready, get it ready. Be yeah. ready so that you've got it under your belt and in your socks, if you know what I mean. Don't let it come across you suddenly as a bit of a shock. I know you no. quite relish sight reading, but that's not really to be recommended, is it, for something like a Pierre Boulez piece? Mm, not for no. notation. I don't think so. No. I'm looking at this. I can't make head or tail. That, this is my fear. Do you want to just see me? Look, fear opened on my face, just looking at a page. That fills me with absolute dread, the whole thing, because I can't understand a bit of it. I can't understand. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. You've got, it's tiny for a start. All the notes are so tiny. I don't know how you can even follow it. I don't know how you can follow it. And then as a conductor, you're conducting all these things simultaneously. Study. I know. And, and actually, no, if you're talking about the fear, you're talking about nerves, aren't you? So every performer has, has to nerves. a certain extent, apprehension. Um, which gives you then the the um, the capacity. If if you're apprehensive, then you are dealing with the apprehension mm. by preparation and by um, application. Karen, I think what we're talking about here: fear is dreadful because fear stops you doing anything. It literally r r makes you rigid, so that you can't dance or speak or play properly if you're rigid with fear. But the flutter. The flutter of adrenaline and butterflies, and the and the sense of being living in the moment. It's really focus, 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 isn't it? Just be. You've got to be in the moment when you're doing this. Don't think so yeah. far ahead. Don't think in the next movement I've got a really fiddly hand thing. Don't think on stage. Oh gosh, I've got a huge speech coming up in four pages. No. Don't think like that. Live in the moment, and then that's the way you'll surf the wave. Yep. Did you yep. see? I brought in quite an athletic kind of thing there. I'm going to jump sideways slightly now and ask you if I've read that Eurydice or Eurydice is the first ever opera. Is that true? And if so, how did someone come up with the form? Or is it just the oldest surviving opera? You're right. Um, but it is arguable that Eurydice by a composer called Perry. Uh, written and performed in about 1600. Um, it, it, that is quite often said to be the first staged musical work that that um, is an opera, i.e. sung throughout. But there's an earlier one by Perry called Daphne. Not a lot of people know that, and I certainly don't know Daphne. Um, but the 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 person who is credited with writing really what was more substantially um, a, a form of an opera that then became um, quite, a, quite a model was Monteverdi with his Orpheus, uh, L'Orfeo. Um, and that's in 1605, so it's only a few years later. And that's a fantastically wonderful piece. So in Shakespeare's day, were people, that, because there were songs. Yes, but interspersed but with dialogue. Interspersed with dialogue. You, um, you, you can look at your history books and, and see that the Greeks produced um, plays with music. Um, but it took a, a hugely long period of time, 1,500 years, um, more, 
um, for someone to come up with the form of entirely sung opera. What they would call nowadays through composed, which is no, and I, I didn't know. Obviously, that. Was, what do you mean? Why? Why is that the right? That thing? doesn't happen until Wagner's time, um, you, because Mozart is aria and recitative. Recitative, which is spoken. It's not spoken. It's a half sung. It's sung spoken. conversation. Yeah, but it's not through composed. Just li- literally, just listen, my dear listeners. I just want Stephen to go to the piano and play me the sort of things that happen behind on Restative, which usually as a conductor you do. You move across the harpsichord and play something. Just show me the kind of stuff which somebody sings. That's what they, the person on stage is singing that. And it's not an aria, but it's just... So, here we go. <laughs> That's so lovely. Um, I love that because it it is of course it's music, but it 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 stops it being. It's always with the harpsichord or sometimes a piano, isn't it? It's never the orchestra. Yes. It's it's separate, and quite often am I right in saying that the the, co- uh, the maestro, the conductor, plays that. Sometimes he doesn't, but you, no, all, you always used sometimes, to. Sometimes, yeah. But, but that's 17th century. The first operas with, with music sung all the way through were not really so clearly divided between aria and recitative at that point. The majority of the opera would have been um, uh, um, continuous recitative with the occasional bit of um, um, arioso. And then there would have been choruses, as in the Greek tragedies, um, when they would comment on the on on the action. Sixteen oh five, Monteverdi's Orfeo is the is, is the, the first opera in the form that we um, well, it, it's it's an infinitely better piece uh, than Perry's Eurydice. Um, will you tell me when Restative was dropped? Because, for instance, at the moment you're just preparing. Tristan Nezolda, Wagner, and that doesn't have restative. So when did when did this when did that sort of singspiel stop? Well, it is really Wagner. It's Wagner who who took German opera away from people like Weber, Freischutz, um, in the uh, first half of the nineteenth century. Um, and it was really Wagner that wrote seamless music. So, so you don't have specific arias. You just have a sequence of music, some slow, some fast, some, um, some uh, you can see it in Strauss, but conversational um, music that is, that, that is constant. So it was really from 1850 onwards. We're going to talk about all that later, but this time we've come to the end of our mini-broadcast. I hate it because I like listening to you talking. <laughs> it's really lucky as this is called Yara and the Maestro. Thank you so much for listening. And that is actually the end of the series, end of series two. So I'm going to say farewell to you until we all meet again. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.